Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical world, classical literature, old things, old stuff, brought to you by young guys. <laughs> we're are not we, old. Are we that young? Well, we're getting there. Okay. Um, but we... What, what's the cutoff for old? Just curious. Yeah, it's a great well, yeah, question. Where's middle age? I feel like I'm middle age. Is it 35? Is you can only know... You can, 40, isn't 40 middle age? No, you can only know when you, after you're dead, because you can oh, the divide by half. No, and, and oh, yeah. that's great so there's some middle-aged seven-year-olds, that's what you're saying. Exactly. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a hard thing. <laughs> Wow, oh man, off. man, this really went dark place yeah, really, really early, didn't yeah. it? Jeez, yeah. You should fire me. I'm um, not. I shouldn't be in this. Anyway, place. my name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined with AJ Dark Humor Hannenberg, AJ Macabre Hannenberg, and Thomas Mc. Hello. And uh, we have had we we've t- worked at classical schools. We uh, classical education is a form of education that. I mean, if you ask people in the classical education world, they would say, well, this is what education was mm-hmm. before World War II ended, right? Like this, <laughs> yeah, and then sure. we had sort of a modern education movement happen, and now we have this dis- dis- differentiation. Yep. So Thomas has worked in classical education. AJ and I still currently teach at a classical school. And uh, Mr. Megby, you are bringing an article t- to us today oh. by someone who is sort of near and dear to my heart. Yes. Um, uh, and he's sort of a paragon in the classical education world, David Hicks. Yes. And um, he wrote an article, I don't know, maybe a number of years ago. Was it for First Things? Yes, yeah, the winter 2017 episode. I think it technically was published in 2016, November 2016. Uh, uh, first just, Things? Yeah. Is it just me or mm-hmm. does David Hicks sound like a performer at like an old Western oh, shoot-em-up show? This, this oh, is actually yeah. the first thing I was going to... So Like a six guns. Pew, pew. There are actually a lot of different David Hicks. So like, Oh, really? Yeah, so David Nightingale Hicks is a British interior designer from the oh. 1920s. There's a good one. Uh, there's a ski jumper named David Hicks. There's a rugby league player. I don't. Did you like rugby? I, I do not oh, like man, rugby. Sorry. You like weird sports. I assume that rugby would be one of them. Soccer's not weird. Sorry, what? And hockey? Yeah, it's weird. The yeah, backbone of society. <laughs> not, it's on our. It's on Canadian society. money. Is that true? Yeah, the five dollar bill has a hockey game on the back. That's, really? Yeah. Actually, kind of great. <laughs> that's great. Wouldn't it be great if the American Bills just had like a football, football. game? Football. Yeah, on the back. Yeah. Why not? I mean, why, why not? not? Uh, we are not talking about any of those David Hicks, unfortunately. We're not even, well, I guess maybe we'll talk about the guy himself. But uh, yeah, we're talking about an article from 2016, 2017. The, I'll just, I'll, the article is named, Is Classical Education Still Possible? And, you know, you all have been employed mm-hmm. 2016 until now. So the answer is obviously yes, right? It's an open question. But, Seriously. I mean, I know the article that we're talking about. And um, um, yeah. I don't know what you would call what I'm doing. Classical education. What are you talking about? Nah. Yeah, I mean, I I try. Well, maybe, again, as uh, I I say, there are only a few topics we ever dance around, and one of them is going to be what is classical education, (laughs) so we'll get into that. But before we do, let's just kind of, so we're talking about this article that came out in 2017, and if just some rando posted on the internet, I don't think classical education is possible anymore, it wouldn't be that interesting Mm -hmm. an article, or we wouldn't care about it. There are lots of people who don't like classical education, and we don't do episodes on their articles. Why is why does it matter that David Hicks yeah. was the person who wrote that article? Um, he, I mean, he wrote a book called Norms and Nobility, yes. and Norms and Nobility is kind of like a playbook for for a lot of people of thinking about education, class classical education. Um, it's the it's the battle banner of the movement. Yeah, right? in many ways, yeah. In many ways it is. His um, Dorothy Sayers' mm-hmm. uh, Lost Tools of Learning, or Dorothy Sayers' essay on, um, on The Lost Tools, the of, Lost Tools of Learning is yep. another one. But the, his book, Norms and Nobility, um, is, uh, yeah, is really like a, a gold standard text for classical education. He worked in, he started a number of classical schools. He sort of started working in the is it like the New England prep school yeah, environment? Yeah, he did, yeah. And then moved to classical school. So New England prep school is kind of schools that are taking their um, heritage from British schools, yes. which have which have sort of, you know, taken their heritage from what a lot of what we would have called classical education, like, you know, tracing their lineage back to like Henry V or whatever. Yes. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of those schools still have these... Um, forms and models of education that kind of were lost in the new world and uh except maybe in some of these 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 new england prep schools Mm -hmm. that tried to hold on to that that sort of british education identity so he worked in there and then started a bunch of classical schools after that and now is a wild man in the woods yeah we'll get to that all that too 
Um, just a little more on background for him. Went to Princeton, master's degree at Oxford, Rhodes Scholar, and then um, works at a number of schools. And then in 1981, publishes Norms and Nobility, which, you know, it's so you have the Sayers essay in 48, I think, 1948, some 1940s, 1950s, Lost Tools of Learning. That kind of gives us this idea of the trivium. It's a reinterpretation of a super old idea. Um, of these different kind of stages. I'm sorry, the old idea is not about stages of learning. That's a thing that she kind of comes up with. That's a very important idea to developing these schools that teach with this method of tailoring your method of education to the age of the child. And then 1981 comes along, Norms of Nobility. And then you'll have other you know books that come out in the 90s. Um, I think Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning is early 90s. And then you kind of you get popularization as you go from there. But it's it's early in terms of this kind of spread of classical education. Um, over the course of his career, he he's had he's still he's still living. He he's had about thirty years, twenty five to thirty years of experience as a headmaster across many schools, and particularly either st- starting schools, but most of the ones from eighty on, he would come in to implement a more classical curriculum. So he'd kind of either help them adjust course or come back to those roots as valuing the classical. Like, for example, the back half of Norms and Nobility is just a, a curriculum. curriculum map. Yep, exactly. Well, let's focus more there for a little while. So what we've referenced this book a few times. Longtime listeners will remember that the first 10 episodes were essentially on norms and nobility. Not only there were other topics in there, but were, it was referenced many, many times. What is this book about? So you've made reference there's a piece that's about curriculum. There's a piece that's about classical education. But what is this book about? Hmm. What is man? <laughs> yeah, sure. So a huge part of it is the purpose of education. Mm-hmm. Why does education exist? That's a, a big part of it. And uh, what's what modern education sort of serves to do to the student? Yes. And you bringing up modern education, it's also it opens with this kind of tracing the history of like, where does education come from? He picks up the story starting in England, as I remember it, or starting in Europe uh, around, Graham said most of this, but what they call public schools are their private schools and what we call private schools are their public school. Anyway, the, the names are complicated, but essentially this kind of tradition of the elite being trained at these very special, very costly institutions. And then that being brought and kind of more democratized as it's come to the United States. Mm-hmm. So that what once was the purview of only the wealthy and the, you know, to get into a, a public school in Europe is not only the money. It's also the like social cachet or being a certain class. Um, so like the education of Eton College or Harrow yeah. coming to the United States. Veritas Academy. Yeah, exactly. Which, uh, you know, you don't have to be a scion of wealth to, mm-hmm. to attend, right? Like, um, um, you know everyone who signs on for a statement of faith or whatever is allowed to attend mm-hmm. the school, right? So that kind of democratization, he's tracing that story. In addition to answering this question of what is education for, do you all have any memory of what he comes to of what education is for? Uh, oh, man, it's been so long since I read it. Um, I think, the, the I, think term, I lost my copy, which is very bummer because it's like 50 bucks. Yeah, I should say, yeah. So it was published in 81. It was republished, I want to say, in 99 yeah, or 2000 like somewhere. And then I don't think it's been republished since then. Do you all remember the idea of mythos? Yes. The idea is so that is to give him uh, some sort of ability to try to discern the ideal type in the world sure. using using dialectic and – I can't remember the other one. Something like that. Dialectic and mythos balance. Isn't Ratio and Intellectus? Isn't that from him? Or like he talks about that? I think Ratio and Intellectus I got from C.S. Lewis's okay. book. Okay. But regardless, the uh, poema, I remember being a... Anyway, so what is the purpose of education? Yes, you teach a bunch of stuff. He, this is picked up by lots of classical educators. This is like moral direction of mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. what is being taught. The paideia of the kid. Paideia is a, he's a, is a repeated concept from the book. And then what you're trying to end up with is... Um, this pursuit of the mythos, this pursuit of this ideal type. Ideal type is the phrase repeated a lot also. Um, And so this will then get kind of formalized as like your portrait of the graduate, but you have like a type of person you want to come out of your, uh, come out of your school at the end of your time with them. Right. And that's done with like the battle of ideas and the dialectic of you asking questions of your teacher and your teacher asking questions of you. And it's kind of um, comes out of that, sort of um, pursuit. So like, you know, 
what is justice? Yeah. All right, kids, what are what's justice? And then kids asking questions and teachers saying, like, okay, what about X? What about this? Is that just? And so the idea being that, like, the student has a concept of it but doesn't have a formalization mm-hmm. of it. And then, okay, well, let's let's read the story. Let's mm-hmm. go. It's what Agamemnon what did like? just. Yeah, exactly. And then you go, and then from there, you're kind of building up a um, some sort of sense as to what the uh, the ideal way of, of living in the world is. Sure. What, what is yeah. the ideal type? So that, that's dialectic, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, pulling, a, dialectic. pulling at mm-hmm. something until you have the core essence of what it is. But there are some drawbacks yes. to dialectic that you can keep on pulling until there's nothing. Um, whereas mythos provides an example. Like, yes. this is this is justice. When we look at this person, and then the teacher is expected to provide at least a little bit of that yep. mythos. Sure. And that's, you know, in preparing for this episode, there, there are lots of articles that either cite David Hicks or, you know, interview him, right? He's uh, someone that people like to talk to. And one that I came across was from the Searcy Institute where, you know, the question I think is how do you teach well in the classroom? And Hicks's answer is what Graham and AJ were just saying of, okay, so, you know, start with your main question. What's the, or what's the idea that we're going to develop by going through this work? Start with your question, get their input, get them engaged, and then kind of start answering that question with, here's what you think, here are some answers from people, you know, who predate us. How does that relate to what you're saying? And then you kind of move toward a, an answer to the question, right? Yeah, I think um, um, Andrew Kern at Cersei Institute, I think he says something, something along the lines of like, there are th- only really three questions that you need to, any teacher needs to ask. What is it? I can remember two. It's, was that fair? What should they have done? And there's there's another one I can't remember what it is, but but those are all questions that are sort of driving at that idea of what is the ideal type, what is what ought what the oughts, what ought to have done, as opposed to what is. Yeah, but I think AJ's point is important. Mm -hmm. Of it's not only the questioning, it's then but then it's also the presenting of of there's an answer to it. Yes, and and you might be able to say you know some things worked for Beowulf because of the time he was born, but you know there are certain characteristics that are the same then and now. Yeah. Maybe. That that answer is like the the refuge of the scoundrel student. What? It's like, well, oh, um, um, in Beowulf's time, it was really acceptable for this to happen. So, but for us, it's a little, you know, it's not as acceptable. But it's like, okay, first of all, so you, you haven't done any yeah. research on Beowulf's time to be able sure. to make that claim. Sure. Um, but it's like, they were totally cool with murder, but nowadays we're not. It's like, no, dude. No, they weren't. They it's weren't just totally, you're, you're yeah. being lazy in your writing. <laughs> I feel like you're responding to something very Sorry. personal right now. No. Yeah, <laughs> you want to name a, the it's a personal beef. But yeah, I, 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 that I hit that too. Students that like, well, their culture was different, so yes. it's not quite the same. Well, man, hasn't lazy, changed that much yes, yet. Yeah. Or it's a lazy way to critique it. If, it is. Unless you can point to like a specific difference. Times change. But, Th- that's true. Yeah. But certain qualities are consistent. Yeah, that's what I, I, I'm sure I've said it here before. I just, I'm always shocked that like we're able to read things from 3,000 years ago and it's comprehensible to yeah. us. Like the, yes, lots of things have changed, but like a shocking amount has stayed the same between then and now that I can understand the the temptations, the struggles, the victories that they had even across 3,000 years or, mm-hmm. you know, pick your length of time. Okay, so 81, he, he publishes this book. Uh, he would then go on to be uh, headmaster at many other schools after this. Um, the one I know uh, is St. Mark's in Dallas, which is an all-boys uh, private school. Um, and then Graham made reference to some of his the schools in the Northeast. I think I have them listed somewhere later St. on. St. Paul's, I think. At St. Paul's, is, yeah, correct. And there's one, another one in Georgia after that. Uh, and then he mm. went to – that was his time as headmaster, and then he went on to become a director of academics – I, I listened to an interview where he talked about how he just kind of got to the end of 30 years and was like, I'm done. I'm done being headmaster. <laughs> and then love, and then spent 15 years as a director of academics and just loved it. Hmm. Um, anyway, did that for, did that until the uh, company was sold. And then he bought a farm and uh, is living in Montana, mm-hmm. I think, uh, raising organic uh, fruits and vegetables. That's what so, happens. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, later maybe. He also... I'm just 30 years earlier. You're, that's what I was going to say. That's why I, I wasn't sure. I thought you were being like somewhat critical of this direction, but the more I read the story, I'm like, Graham should love everything about this, right? Like you're trying to live this life. <laughs> oh, I don't want to be headmaster for 30 years. That, I'm, sure, I'm, but maybe you know, teach English for 30 years and then farm full time. I don't know. Um, so anyway, that's his kind of that's the that's one part of his professional career. The other is that he also uh, translated Marcus Aurelius in 2002. Uh, it's, it's the meditations is the book that he's translating, but the, his version, or it's actually him and his brother. So, um, we have David Hicks and then his brother is Scott Hicks. Um, Scott lived in Paris for quite, uh, quite a long time. I think is now moved back to Montana. Anyway, the two of them worked together to translate 
Marcus Aurelius's med meditations. It's called the, the Emperor's Handbook if you want to go out and read it. For what it's worth, it's well-reviewed. So, you know, you see something around five stars if you look at Amazon for whatever that's worth. And also it's compared favorably to what I think is the most popular translation, which is the Gregory Hayes translation. That's the one I have. I don't know if you all know which one you all have. I have the Gregory Hayes. Yeah, yeah. I could check, but it's probably it's not the it's same. Not. But yeah, uh, it's often compared favorably. So if you're looking for a, another translation of that book, feel free to go ahead and check that out. Uh, yeah. He most recently has been translating Plutarch's Lives, mm. which, AJ, didn't you do an episode on Plutarch's Lives? Or is that something you'd come In a mixture with Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's actually... Okay, so the two... The two translations that he's done so far, again, him and his brother, are The Lawgivers, which is um, Numa Pompilius and Lycurgus of Sparta compared to each other. Uh, sorry, the um, Plutarch's Lives, that's sometimes called the Parallel Lives, and it's a comparison of one Roman and one Greek to each other to kind of either show how one's better, one's worse, just kind of com compare and contrast them to each other. Um, so the first set of people compared are the lawgivers. So you have the the person who like founded Sparta, Lycurgus, and then you have um, the second king of Rome, that's Numa Pompilius. So the two of them are compared and contrasted, um, you know, to learn lessons from the two of them. And then the second one's been published is called The Statesman. That's the parallel lives of Cato the Younger and um, Phocion of Athens. Uh, and Phocion is an Athenian politician. Uh, but anyway, the third one is why, why I was getting at this, is going to be called The Tyrant. It hasn't come out yet, but it's a comparison of Plutarch's Life of Caesar with the Shakespeare play of Caesar. So that'll be the huh. next comparison. I thought that'd be something you'd be interested That's in. That's kind of fun. Cool. Um, so it'll be a new translation of that part of Plutarch's Lives and then kind of compared and contrasted with the Shakespeare version. Oh, cool. Which, again, those are things you read in your... You still read that in ninth grade, right? Oh, yeah. yeah okay, good. Okay, so you know, what's, your, what's your kind of takeaway as we're going through this David Hicks bio for Kicks and Grins? Um, he's the real deal. I mean, he put forth this book that was super important to the classical education movement or whatever you want to call it Too many, you know, if you look up a list of recommended books at any classical school, they should have norms and nobility on that list, even mm -hmm. though it's really hard to get the book. And it's kind of dense. I don't know if you all remember. It is this. very dense. Oh yeah. It's tough to get through. It's tough to get through. And like we're people who really like enjoy it's this. It's like stuff. espresso. Like yes. you do it in small shots. Yes. Or you're going to get sick. Yeah. And I want to say the chapters are pretty short where you could do it that way. I remember there being sure. lots of chapters, <laughs> but just, it's very, it's dense. Mm -hmm. It's definitely dense. Um, there's that. He also just had a lot of, you know, on the ground experience in these classical schools or schools implementing a more classical curriculum. Um, and also he's like super classical because he like actually knows ancient languages, unlike the three of us who Correct. just kind of show up and share our opinions. Um, and I just, you know, I'm super impressed that he's like, you know, still like translating and publishing books. I think that's really great. Okay. So I think I've gone through most of his bio. He also served in the Navy for whatever that's worth. Um, I already mentioned this. He was chief academic officer for a company based out of Chicago, Meritas Family of Schools from 2006 to 2015. Now he lives in Montana. Okay. That basically gets us close enough to this article, which comes out in late 2016, but it's called the 2017 issue of the Searcy Institute magazine. Okay. So the question posed... Forma. It came out in Forma, not First Things, right? Circe Institute is what I keep saying. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But not First Things. No. It's, but it, Forma is the Circe Institute magazine. I want to say if I just pull it up, it just says... Um, it is not Forma. Anyway, whatever. No, Forma matter. is the name of that yeah. magazine. I don't know why. Um, it's a great magazine. Yeah, Forma is really good. And they what I especially appreciate about them is the um, they do podcasts, uh, podcast interviews to go along with the articles in mm -hmm. the issue. So... Um, Check that out. For some, when I pull it up, it, you can find this online. It's it's uh, issue.com, I-S-S-U-U.com. Uh, they call it the 2017 Circe Magazine. Mm. So that's what they call it on here. Okay, so the question posed in this um, article is, is classical education still possible? Now, uh, at one level, it seems like a silly question to ask. Maybe, you know, if I start it this way, are there class are there schools that call themselves classical operating today? Yes. We're sitting in one. Yeah, we we're are. sitting in one right now as we record this. So that mm -hmm. might seem like a silly question to ask. Um, but uh, what Hicks is getting at is a more specific question than just can there be schools that operate that call themselves classical? So um, he opens, but it's a short article, so I'll probably quote kind of decent chunks of it. So apologies in advance, but I want to accurately represent the argument being made. Um, so he opens with, there are many different views toward what education should be. 
they essentially break into this group of two. Either we need improvements to make education possible or we need to return back to something to make education possible. He falls in this category of there being something we need to return to and says there are many other groups that uh, fall under that. Not just classical, but anything that, um, you know, anything with the great books or people that champion reading, writing, arithmetic as the, as the core of what should be taught. There are lots of things that fall under this. We need to return to something class. Um, but uh, and finally, we find schools that in both private and public settings claim to provide a classical education, which usually entails some combination of these different methods, but they call themselves classical. That's kind of the important part. Okay. So he's opening with, there are schools that call themselves classical. The question being asked is, um, in this essay, I shall argue, I guess he's stating it, I shall argue that the necessary conditions for a classical education don't exist in America. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that one can't teach Greek or Latin or the trivium and quadrivium or adopt any of the other pedagogies loosely associated with the classical education. But while these may suggest a flavor for what it means to receive a classical education, none of these comes close to offering the meat and potatoes of that education. In the modern secular societies of the West, the assumption and infrastructure necessary to support a true classical education are largely and officially absent. Instead, they are regarded as antithetical to the modern state and its institutions. So that's kind of the, you know, your opening salvo, if you will. Bummer. Taking a firm stance there. Yes. Well, give me a response to this. We'll get into what his argument is, but he's starting from a place of saying classical education can't exist in the United States. Do you, do you immediately push back on that statement? Do you have sympathy with that well, statement? Well, if he's talking about how classical education used to happen, it was only for the wealthy with a private tutor, or you'd send them to a very exclusive school with 20 pupils total, and they would learn under a sage, like a guy who himself was incredible at it. I mean, that's... And usually, you could do that because you had slaves, presumably, and because you were incredibly wealthy. Well, yeah, that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but yeah, that's not good. what he's getting at. He's getting at the like. There's um, there are just sort of beliefs about the med about metaphysics that are so different as modern people than as ancient people that discussions about the ideal type can't even happen. Yes, maybe that's he that and we like someone. There's something about science. We love science too come, much. We'll get to science uh, later. That's funny. Um, maybe this gets at probably a first conversation we should have before going into the rest of his argument, but like many of the terms one finds bandied about in the world of education, the term classical education does not so much describe a specific and well understood approach to learning and teaching as something that feels good and appeals to the second group, the group that thinks we should return to something of reformers um, and to those who no longer trust the first group about we're looking for something new mm -hmm. and we'll find a better form of education in something new. So again, classical, his opening argument is that classical education is not a specific thing. It's more of a feeling that's associated with people who send their students there as opposed to the public school or mm -hmm. as opposed to some other type of private school. Do you uh, accept that argument? Do you think classical education is a clearly defined term? I don't think it's clearly defined hardly at all. Most of the time, I, I've been to a few conferences and I've gone to speak at some other schools and the majority of what I meet is people who cannot clearly define what classical education is. There's strange notions of it involving old languages or old books. Strange notions? What do you mean? Well, the thing is, is when classical education was happening, those languages oh. were in use and the books hadn't been written. <laughs> or to say you weren't translating the books because it was in the language you spoke or, or could yeah, read. Already. Exactly. Yeah, sure, yeah. So yeah. if we are That's to return point. to that, we would be reading <laughs> modern books and at the fore, like forefront edge of science and philosophy. That's like funny. it's in, yeah. in that way... Like that notion of classical education doesn't doesn't look at all like yeah, what they the weren't reading old stuff. They were they were <laughs> talking reading. about new stuff, right? Exactly, and exactly. new ideas about philosophy and really pushing forward into new spaces. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't it's know. not just the like yeah the holding up of the old. Yes. Yeah, um, and so I, but the thing is, my my point is that people when I ask them what is classical education, they have no idea, and it's taken me several years to even form my notion of what classical education is. Do you want to start with that? When So you teach at a classical school. What does it mean for a school to be classical? The way, the way that I've defined it is that we have, we have a clear notion of the ideal type and we are, like we admit to it, we, we can say exactly what it is and it adheres to an older idea of the ideal type. So man should be this 
and it's very close to what they were trying to make man previously. And the methods to get the student to that place are specific, right? So I, when I, I actually do a whole talk on this. And when I talk about it, I talk about um, the goal. So the ideal type, ideal type, what we believe about the student, like who the student is, where they are going, and how to get them there. So all of those pieces are elements of classical education. But I'm, you know, I suspect that I'm wrong because it looks, you're, I, there's an article from this guy and he's way more famous than, that doesn't you know, mean you're he's, wrong. he's smart. I'm probably wrong. I'm probably the, wrong. Again, the whole premise he's opening with is that it's not a well-defined term. So mm-hmm. I think there are lots of good ways to answer this question of what is classical. Do you want to? No, no, that's fine. Okay. Or do you have any, you don't have any, any thoughts on the definition or further expansion? Um, no, I've find this article incredibly challenging. Agreed. I remember blowing it off the first time I read mm-hmm. it and thinking, he, you know, he's... You know, he's hair, cranky. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's cranky. His hair's on fire, whatever. But in returning to it, to read this, I think I think he's on to something. Um, I do think this first... It could... I mean, my original reading of it was like, okay, fine, yeah, we're not going to be like ancient Greece and just, Rome, but sure. can we do this thing that we've all been talking about? That was my first reading of it. But I think it goes further than that. It does go further uh, than that. And that's, you know, we'll see where we get to. Okay, so... The, the first thing that's a problem is that Hicks is using a very specific definition of classical education. Mm-hmm. He wrote a whole book to expound on what that, what that is. And the best definition is the title of the book, Norms and Nobility. Mm-hmm. What is taught through education? You are taught norms, which you are taught a certain cultural way to be in your time and place. Uh, I, I would call it refined is probably the right term for it. There, but there is a there are better and worse ways to live in your society and your time. Yes, you need to receive those and live into those. Uh, you know, once upon a time, going to certain colleges would produce you know an Oxford man or woman. You, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it meant something to go to one school versus another, and that's a thing that Hicks is arguing for and defending in his book. Uh, and maybe that ties in with nobility as well, but. Uh, the norms are there's a way you should act. Nobility means there's a better, you know, ideal way you should act. Um, just taking this from a quote of his, again, I, I listened to a bunch of interviews because I wanted I want to do service to his argument because I think he has a lot of good points. That his definition of classical education is focused on the development of style through language and conscience through myth. Um, the development of style through language and conscience through myth. So again, there's an ideal type you're going after. You're going to get there through the stories you tell. There's a way to live into a right style that you're going to learn through um, reading primarily, but also translation, language, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his big beef is like, no one else cares. Like mm-hmm. no one else in the world holds to these standards yes. of myth and no one else uh, holds to these in, styles in this of language. article, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So well, we can dive into that. So just to start it with there, this, this maybe is a part of your answer, AJ, when you give your talk. But I think a lot of people would define classical education as we use the Sayers method of the trivium, <laughs> that we teach along grammar, logic, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that can't be classical. It can't be classical in the sense of like it, sh- she made it up in the 1940s. You know, like it's not classical in a sense of it's really old. Um, she, in, in the article, admits to this being a reinterpretation of mm-hmm. grammar, logic, rhetoric from the medievals. Um, so there's, and also, you know, for what it's worth, you're right, AJ, if you go back to Greece, they're not doing a lot of translation, but if you go to the Middle Ages, it is translation. Do you know, like classical education sure. changes over time too. Mm-hmm. So it's like hard to, you know, what's, when do you freeze history and say that's the right classical education? Do you know what I mean? I mean, 1825. Yeah, obviously is the right answer. Yeah. Okay. So that's the opening is that classical education is really hard to define. So I think we agree on that point. Um, there are four pillars, Hicks argues, that are necessary to a good and right classical education. That and all four of them don't exist. And, that's, and, and don't <laughs> exist. Therefore, classical education can't mm-hmm. happen. So we'll go through what those four pillars are. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the classical world, this is the first pillar, whether pagan or Christian, believed without serious questioning that man lived in two worlds, one of time and material appearances, the other of eternity and immaterial reality. These two worlds, no one doubted, interacted in strange and mysterious ways, and whether the student was memorizing Homer's epics or reading Plato's dialogues, he was trying to gain a better understanding of this interaction and how it might increase his knowledge of the world and inform his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, This assumption assured him of at least two things, that perhaps in this life, and certainly in the next, 
he would be held accountable for his choices Mm -hmm. and that he was wise to govern his passions with his intellect and to be aware of his natural limitations and to accept them with grace and equanimity. And this isn't this isn't just like everybody was Christian and believed in heaven. No. This is even in the going into the pagan world, uh, pre-Christian, like everybody operated under this fundamental belief that yes, you were held accountable for your actions, um, and that through learning and reading and discussion, you could understand how those two worlds interacted. And it was it was worth your time. And to it study was worth that your time. To yeah. Do it. Again, th- you know, think of the philosophers that we still have records of. Like they would sit around just to contemplate that connection between the two, and they were not, you know, some were mocked for it, but by and large, that was viewed as like a worthwhile use of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, have we have we talked about these four pillars before? I seem to remember an episode we did. We had that. a failed podcast. Can I can I tell our listeners about it? it? Oh no! It's did I screw it up? Is no, the I one I, is no. The one it's I embarrassing. Are you okay with me sharing it? Is it does it embarrass me? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's get. Are weird. you sure? You say, like, yeah, let's get weird. Yeah, sure. Graham brought this episode to, like, go through these four uh, pillars. You had not slept the night before, and you fell asleep halfway through his episode. So we had to delete that one. I didn't. Yeah. You did. 100% you did. You don't remember it. Of course, he was sleeping. You fell asleep. Did I really fall asleep? Yeah, 100%. You guys are making this up. I'm not making this up. I I, I do not have any memory. Any memory of this. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, that's why you've heard these pillars. Also, hopefully you've read this article before. I I haven't. I don't know. Okay. Well, maybe I have. You've listened to part no, of it. No, I've, yes, I'd have definitely, that's where it is from. It's, pro, I think, from an in-service we did. We did an in-service on this did article. You? Yeah. Right. That's what many it is. Years yeah, ago. I've definitely mm-hmm. read this. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, if it was, if it was many years ago, I was, I must have been here during it. Yeah, because it came out I, in 2017. Yeah, yeah. and Are then we, we talked about it in your uh, classroom. Maybe it was that, our specific, oh, that's what it was. Yes. You brought it as an article to our specific PLC. Yes, I did. I did. So that was like Professional two years community. ago. That was like two years ago. Yeah, that was yeah. two years ago. So we yeah. did do it. So that I can't believe I fell asleep during one of your podcasts. Well, apparently you've already, you have your familiarity with yeah, the so topic. Yeah, it's close so enough. You, don't have, you didn't need to. I'm so sorry. I don't, I honestly you have just no recollection okay. of this. Yeah. That's funny. It was just, did you guys plan this as a joke to claim that I fell asleep during a podcast? No, no, it was one of the, we have... A, only a handful. There was two episodes that we've recorded and never released, and one that we half recorded, or one we did and we didn't realize we weren't recording, or it died, or whatever. Well, there was one where I was a punk, yep. and so we didn't put it yep. out. And apparently, another one. There was where I one slept. where you fell asleep. We didn't put we've it run, out. We've read on both of them now, though, because I re- I read the T. S. Eliot episode, right. and that has been released into the world, and now this is the Four Pillars one yeah. being redone. It's fine. You uh, ask. Clearly, sorry. I'm the burr under the saddle. No, I mean, I'm just the problem. Strike two minute. Hang I would on. like you to be a burr. Jeez, I'm, I'm on probation here. You're not. No, I'd like you to be a burr under the saddle of this argument. So the first thing that is, the first pillar that has been knocked Hand, out. You're a burr under the saddle of my heart. <laughs> Wait, no, that's not, Wait, that's not awful. a good thing. That's Why would I want to be that? Um, you're the bomb on no, my like chaffed high. No, no, thank you. Oh, bomb. B-A. <laughs> bomb. Yeah. Not B-O-M-B. Well, if we're talking like, about birds on saddles, you have uh, a chaffed no, I high. I understood. Okay, Whatever. AJ, I want your response to this, though. So the first pillar that... Um, that Hicks claims as a universal thing that everyone accepted was this kind of difference between the material and the immaterial, this connection between the two and the the necessity of learning about that connection of the two. Um, And that no longer exists today. I'm not not reading that part. Or little materialists. That's one way of of framing it, but that, you know, take it however you want to, but um, there was kind of an objectivity to a right way to live that he argues does not exist now. Mm Anyway, so do you have oh, any? My word, I, what Ayn Rand? Oh, I guess it's classical. Did. That's kidding. Uh, There's an objectivity of how to live. Isn't that like if you read any philosophy, it like kind of relates to an old idea? Correct. Like no one says anything. No, really. this she invented that whole cloth. Yeah, it, it came from nowhere. She just, came from nowhere. Yeah, just, just from her head. Rational so self-interest. His, his his position is not Sorry. that there was one ideal type that all philosophers agreed upon, but that it, philosophers agreed that there was some there was, spiritual there was an ideal type. There, there was an ideal type. Okay, yeah. at all. As a con, yes, as a thing. Okay. Do you, you have any? Well, that sounds right. I mean, like, oh, you uh, may disagree on what it is, but you didn't disagree that it existed. But there was one. Yeah, most of what philosophers did was arguing about how man should live. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they were putting forth a notion of this is what man should be doing. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, we talked in the causation episode about, like, uh, you know, there are lots of things that Herodotus can be wrong about, such as how the pyramids were built, but he can be right on these were heroes, these were villains that he portrays in Egypt or Persia or whatever. Dude, he just built, they just built a big the stick mod. Yeah, 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 built a big machine. Yeah, I don't see how it's so hard. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really dumb is the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but if there's no longer this connection, if there's no longer uh, like an immaterial thing that is going to, that, um, that we make choices about and that um, continues to exist and that if we 
act poorly, we're held account for acting poorly. There's kind of like no reason to ask about moral questions. They kind of don't matter, right? Um, he's not exactly saying this, but Graham, you pointing to materialism. It's kind of like, you know, if materialism is the view that all the, the only thing that's real is material, all that matters is like physical stuff. Well, if materialism is true, you don't have to care about the afterlife because there is no afterlife. Mm -hmm. And if there's no afterlife, you're not held to account for anything that you do that you get away with, mm -hmm. right? The only punishments are in this life. Therefore, you could find a way to promote like a sneakiness. Sure. It becomes the ultimate virtue of, um, yeah, I should appear to be virtuous, but actually being virtuous doesn't matter because when I die, none of it matters anyway. Which is the charge that Plato is answering in the Republic. Yes. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, the guy says, why don't I just be dirty and have everybody think I'm nice? Does he? Does Plato point to an afterlife? What does he point to for... No, he says that virtue is worth having in and of it itself, like because itself. it's an internal organization. Yeah. So it, it's being a cruel, horrible person underneath, and even if everyone believes you are a great guy, yep. is horrible for you as yes. an individual. So it's it's all based in the here and now. Yeah, and, but... Uh, but I'm being unfair. It's not just about there being an afterlife. It's that like that moral, like everything you just said is an immaterial part of yourself. It's not just I'll get rich because I'm virtuous. It's like there's a satisfaction I'll have because I'm virtuous. Yes. And that's that's still immaterial, right. that feeling there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first pillar that he says has totally been knocked out. Nothing controversial here so far. Did not expect that. Um, the second one starts to get into, I think, a more esoteric point, and we'll come out of it um, in in future pillars. Um, so it follows. So the point that he's getting at is that an ancient view of studying nature is that nature is that there's like a, a nature that we're supposed to be following. Mm -hmm. This maybe mm -hmm. is like the Tao, which we talked about um, two weeks ago at this point, that the purpose of studying the things around us is to allow ourselves to live in submission to the nature of things around us. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we're sitting here at the Veritas Academy campus. There are 97 beautiful acres around here. Let's say you walk around with your class, you see animals, you see how they interact with each other, you see how ecology relates to one another, that you know you, you teach about how we need one another to survive. Um, everyone has a, an important part to play in an environment making it. So we must kind of submit ourselves to that reality that you discover from, I'm being too specific by focusing on like literal nature outside but there's a way things are. Yes, that, that's the phrase. There's that's what, a way things are, and, and we you need should. to study it. You can study it outside, yep. and you can also study it in, in the stories. Yep. There's a way things are, and we should the happy man submits to it. Submits to it. Yeah. Sounds like the Tao. Yes, it sounds exactly, exactly right. Like yeah. you, they, the, the world is going away, and if, you, if you're, not, you're not on the bus, then it's going to be trouble for you. Yeah. You can drive nature out with the pitchfork, but she keeps coming back. We've, yeah, I think we referenced before, uh, Proverbial has a great episode on that. Um, so that is an ancient... Classical. I keep doing air quotes for classical in case you're not watching on YouTube. That is a classical view toward, you might call it science, but nature. Mm -hmm. Like, why do we study things? Is to submit ourselves to something else. That there's a thing called man, and he has, and he has, has nature. A nature. Yes. As opposed to now, we don't. It's Tabula not, rasa. Well, yes, but also it's not that we study to understand, but we study to manipulate. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's yeah, not yeah, yeah, only. Yeah that um, there's a way that things are. It's There's a way things are, but we could make it better. Mm -hmm. And so the point of studying something is to say, yes, this is how it is. How can we tinker with it to improve however things are? Um, this is a, he, he references in here, like there are good things that come from this. Like we have medicine because of this. But think of, you know, I have a burn, therefore I need to go find an herb that I can put on that to heal the burn. Becomes, how can I synthesize that material to make a, a, a balm that'll, you know, fix my hand and make me feel better. Um, which, like, on its face sounds fine, but it's no longer, it's not natural, I guess. You've, yes, you've put, you've created a system, or you've put into the world a, yeah, that sort of manipulation, and the natural conclusion of it is eventually conquering yourself. Like, this is Lewis's argument in The Abolition of Man, yeah. is that that, that, what starts off as the manipulation of the natural world for man's benefit ends up becoming the rule of the powerful over the yes. Over can, the I, weak. can I just so, get the quote in, just because I think you'll push back on it regardless? Oh no, I'm not. Oh, oh, you, oh I'm just oh, trying oh, to rephrase oh, what oh, he's oh, saying oh, in a in a more digestible way. No, no, I'm not going to tear it away. Okay. I was going to say it's not that, minute forty yet. <laughs> I think it's pretty. Close oh, though. sorry, we're being hard on each other this episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go and cry into my soup later. Um, really like soup? I wish I had soup. Sounds really good. Chicken noodle. So anyway. I was just going to say what you're, you're essentially saying is that nature has no 
claim upon the human person. Correct. It has no standing mm. in the hierarchy such that it can require something of us. Yes, and right. I think that's a very naturalistic idea where yes. if we have evolved, what that means is that our previous state was pretty dumpy yes. and that we only have better to get. And if we can speed that along, that's great. But nature herself is a flawed thing that is just really failing forward and yes. has no claim as as to what we, we should be do. or how we should And isn't act. it is great that, that, that we've a, extracted yes. ourselves out of it? Say again? Isn't it great that we've extracted yes. ourselves out of it? Yeah. Let me let me read it from him. Uh, you know, uh, our success in doing this, this manipulation, has brought many benefits in health, longevity, and material well-being. No one can argue with this. But this is also what makes this sorcerer's apprentice so seductive. How can we ignore the fact that with each benefit, there comes an invoice with mounting interest to be paid, whether in the form of an overpopulated and overheated planet, weaponry of unimaginable destructiveness, chemicals and substances not found in nature that poison the earth, air and water, and our children, and cannot be rendered benign for generations, drugs that increase dependencies and addictions, and technologies that, in the words of Neil Postman, encourage us to amuse ourselves to death. So even in my example of the... Canola oil. Uh, is destroying the earth? Is that kill, what you're... Kill us all. Uh, maybe. But in my example of like making a medicine from, we base it on a natural remedy, we make a, a medicine out of it, we create side effects, right? And we don't know the harm that we We create do. the opioid yeah. you know, it, it, epidemic. Take, you know, take it um, increasing, increasing degrees. We cure one thing but cause a bigger problem that either is unconsidered or wouldn't have happened in the first place if not following this path down. How do we, mani- how do we manipulate nature out of our problems? Um, so nature, instead of being something to fit in, has become something to overcome, stand upon. Yeah, overpower almost. Um, I find it, it it's tough to it's We're tough like to say. Sauron. Oh, like, didn't he like you know like? Oh turn, yeah, he, he turned his nice little forest into like a big yes. orc machine. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, but that it's tough to say all of that is bad. Again, these are probably conversations we'll have in the Patreon in between. But it's like. I like living in a more technologically advanced age than not. Yes. But that comes with costs. And that's the thing he's pointing to. Yeah. Um, I mean, you invent toilet paper and that's great, but then you got clogged toilets. That's exactly right. And then you have to deal with like plumbing all the time or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So that takes us through the second point that we no longer view nature as something to be submissive to. It's now something to be manipulated and changed to our whims. Um, The third pillar is um, this... What has been thrown off is an idea. We, when we did our causation episode, we talked about Aristotle's four causes, and one of them is the end, the the purpose of a thing, the reason a thing exists. The goofy word for that is the telos of a thing, the telos of a thing. And we live now in a time where there is no telos to things. There's no, maybe said differently, we live in a time where a telos is self-identified. Every person gets to pick what their purpose is and pick what, the reason for being, the reason for being on this earth, what it means to be Graham, AJ, and Thomas in 2022. What year is it? We get to pick that as opposed to receiving that from our society, from our predecessors, from any number of things. Uh, I can read more, but just hearing that summary of it, does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, infinite, infinitely customizable. And um, I mean, it's going to be a cliche at some point, but like, the sort of being able to create yourself and, 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 and um, one day we'll have like avatars we can fully customize on sure. the metaverse. And there's even, like, I don't even know how you would say we shouldn't just become avatars in the metaverse. I don't know. I'm excited for it. I'm going to have a mohawk. You can have a mohawk now. Why wouldn't you just get one? I, I couldn't come to work. They no, would, do it over they the summer. would get cranky. Do it over the summer. I could do that. Okay. Uh, you could be a cat. <laughs> in the metaverse or yeah. in real life? Maybe both. I already <laughs> identify <laughs> as a cat. There okay. you go. I'm so sorry. So. No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, but yeah, so there's no, it, these these points somewhat blurred together, but it maybe that's mm-hmm. me having read further. The second, um, the second pillar and the third pillar to me felt like pretty similar derivatives or, yeah. Yeah, again, if nature is something to submit to, it's because our, our, our end we, is to yes, do that. Yes, yes. And so. And that we don't have an end that we submit to. We have... A, a, a wide open undiscovered country, not even an undiscovered country. We have a, we have a, a blank slate that we can we can sort of write the story if whatever we want. Yeah, I, um, I want us to understand that by rejecting the teleological reasoning of the classical world and no longer believing that everything has a pre-existing natural end toward which it is moving, we have freed ourselves to define or re-engineer everything's telos, including our own, as we choose. 
which again is was his point for the second one about nature. You change the purpose of it by manipulating it to make whatever you want to. Um, uh, man, on the other hand, is free. Um, this is the creative opportunity and most profound ethical concern of his life. His his telos is like purpose. In the Genesis story, the tree of knowledge represents this freedom, and Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree to become godlike, as the serpent promised, free of their human telos and natural limitations. Hmm. The result was death. Um, and that's his argument of when you are only self-defining and self-actualizing, you can't, you don't have the satisfaction of like reaching the end for which you were created, I guess is how you would, maybe that's oversimplifying it too much. Said differently, he would say that the choosing of your own telos is reliving the Adam and Eve story, but choosing to eat of the fruit of the knowledge, uh, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that the bad outcome. We pick the bad, the bad outcome by throwing off um, any kind of received definition of what it is to be a person, which gets us to the fourth pillar um, that uh, is, I think, a pretty straightforward one, that if classical education is about passing on norms to the next generation, we live in a time that doesn't value norms. Yeah. And so if... You or know, doesn't value passing things on either. Or, yes, exactly. <laughs> or I tradition. Think that, mm-hmm. I, Norms or tradition. And th- and we'll get there in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, is it minute 40? We're past minute 40. <laughs> I was going to say, I might have pushback on that one. Good, yeah. okay. I'm okay with Okay, great. Um, but this fourth pillar is that <laughs> instead of there being... Uh, the if, if, if education is paideia, that's a term we referenced before, paideia is enculturation. Paideia is the passing on of a culture to that next generation. Um, if all of society around you is throwing off all of its norms anyway, then there's nothing, you don't have that like reinforcement of norms that comes from growing up and then being like culturally accepted. I don't know if I'm explaining Yeah, yeah, this no. Well. I mean, a classical, the cynicism or the cynical look at it could be like the classical school pen spends all of this time um, talking about paideia and talking about norms and talking about uh, the ideal type. And then, all right, congr- you, you've graduated, you go off into the world, and everyone's like, no one does who this. cares, yeah, exactly. right? Like, no one does that. Yeah. I, this is a petty example and not one he plays As opposed to. to, like, going into a society that is like, ah, like, you know, the next class coming in to, yep. like, continue our sacred way of life. Yes. <laughs> and that's the, he doesn't make this example because it's, again, petty, but, like, you know, let's say that you're taught manners uh, during your time in school. Yes. You're taught these are how, you know, you're played and your utensils are laid out. This is the way that a proper gentleman or gentlewoman, whatever, eats their meal. And then you actually go out into the world and no one does that. Deconstruct stuff. manners. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, or, yeah, we should talk more about that in the in between. But, um if no one actually lives life that way, then there's nothing to pass on. And then the next generation loses those norms. And then there's like literally nothing to pass on the generation after. Yes. This was, uh, Alan Bloom's point And, um, what's that book? Using yourself to death. No, no that's the um, one. Isn't it Alan? What's the guy's closing of the American closing mind? of the American that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that this kind of social degeneration, one generation will throw off, the way to live, and then the next generation is where you're like, the real problems come It's like up. that scene in, I think it's No Country for Old Men, where um, um, the, I was going to say Billy D. Williams, that's not the actor. Um, who's the actor? The guy that plays the old sheriff. What's his name? Can't remember. Anyway, but he's like, I saw a kid walking downtown with green hair and a piercing in his nose. And the other guy retorts. Tommy Lee Jones? Tommy Lee Jones. And the other guy retorts like, as soon as as soon as like sir and ma- as soon as I stopped saying sir and ma'am, and it was, it was like typical old timer right. talk, just sort of lamenting it. But they're sort of getting at that sentiment of like um, when you don't have when the things doesn't get passed down. Like sure, it's just sir and ma'am, but but like, there's more to it. There than is that. more to it than yeah. that. Yeah. I want pushback from uh, those are the four points, and then he ends it by saying that you can still have schools that teach a, teach a distinct pedagogy, but you've lost what it really means to be classical. And that's the right. core of his argument. You're throwing them into the meat grinder yeah. of like oblivion. Like, yes. no, yeah. So can you re- review the four pillars really fast just so I have them in my head? Uh, that's a terrible Ooh, Let's one see if I can one. do it. Quiz game. Okay. All right. Um, a one. belief or some sort of sentiment or sense of the afterlife that where your actions are held accountable and the interplay that the afterlife and your current life have. Yep. Um, uh, that you do not need to conform, the idea of conforming to nature, that there is a way things are. Um, the third one 
Things have an end. Things, Things have an end. There's a telos. There's an idea that human beings, that uh, chief end of man. And the last one, um, that... No one cares no about one, your norms. No one yes. cares about your norms. Okay. <laughs> that's the one I feel like I want to give pushback on. Great. Is that is that fair? <laughs> sure. So, I I know we refer to it every like every dang podcast, but... C.S. Lewis in the town. No, what are you going to talk no, about? No, that's exactly oh. it. Is it really? Yeah, I'm C.S. So Lewis excited. in the town. So the point is that you, there, there is no society that exists that doesn't have norms. Correct. Um, and you cannot escape norms. And so his notion that we are losing our norms is simply that we are losing the norms he happens to like. Yeah. Um, yes. Like, more. we do have norms. Yeah, we, sure. we have the new growing norm that you cannot gender someone, right? Um, the growing norm that it is blank acceptance, no matter what the values uh, that everyone chooses how to identify. Like, these are, these are all norms that are being taught to the youth and will be carried on and probably uh, presumably into the next generation, a norm of criticism and de- deconstruction, right? So if we're talking about like deconstruct manners, sure, maybe, but that, that itself is a norm, right? The attitude that nothing should be accepted without being broken into a com- its component parts and being examined, which is a, you know, a symptom of the enlightenment. All of those are norms. And so on this particular pillar, I don't think you can say that there are no norms and no one cares about norms anymore. I would say that now people care about norms an incredible degree, right? That's why we have cancel culture is because mm-hmm. norms exist. Um, it, they simply happen to be the norms that David Hicks doesn't like. Um, so if classical education does exist, as I sit in my classical education, classical education classroom, it means passing down a set of norms differing from that of the culture. Yes. Can a, an mm. organization do that? Yeah. I say, exa- yeah, absolutely yes. I think that we we are now fighting a battle that is more difficult because the students are being taught a different set of norms outside the classroom than they are inside the classroom. Yes. Ideally, our parents are on board with that. But can classical education still attempt to pass down an appropriate set of norms? 100%. Yes, yeah. 100%. Absolutely. So on that p- pillar, I think he's wrong. So yes, um, he's more saying P-E-D. that... P-E-D. Yeah, he's more saying that... Like, Proving my point. Yeah. Do you guys agree? Yes, that's what I'm oh. Graham will say. No, he he's saying that like yes, but the, the but the greater culture is not is yes. not giving you doing any, you any favors. But that doesn't mean we can't have right. classical education. It just mm-hmm. means it's harder, right? I think I think all four points make that point, AJ, of what you just said. That um, we can still have it, but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, I would also we'll get into There's like a million homeschool families that are like, we're doing it. This is what <laughs> I wanted to say of like I got to the end of this and my immediate response I just, you know, we have the best listeners. What, you know, of course, we say that all the time, but like when we get emails from like homeschool families that and it's like usually the student writing or the child, you know, they're now whatever. The student writing us to to say how they listen with their parents, they're doing the work of paideia. They're yeah. doing the work of passing on norms and the the heartbreaking one that I think of is I remember sitting through a um, a session at a classical education conference where a girl, she was homeschooled in the, like the best classical education that you could have described. The way she described her education was, you know, this, and then she then, uh, very idealistically went to work in Washington for the board of education with the mandate in her own mind that she was going to help like bring to American education system, the like the, this kind of education that she had had that right. was so like soul expansive and whatnot. And then when she got to go work at the Board of Education, like survived two years and was absolutely like horrified right. and left and realized very quickly that she was part of the Trump administration and she realized pretty quickly that the people who were in the Board of Education had outlasted the past like eight administrations and were going to outlast her. And the calcification that had happened was going to continue and right. she was not going to affect any change and got really sort of disillusioned and left. Um, and so I sort of think about that as like classical education is like creating all this sort of energetic, excited um, uh, people, uh, educated um, uh, citizens who are wanting to go off and like move and uh, carry that energy forward of Western civilization and then – last two years because because of all these reasons that he's talking about. The the, the norms haven't been passed down on the greater culture. So they're only being – so like if anything, we're creating – we're like maybe Rod Dreher is right in that we're we're creating our – like the new (laughs) citizens of the Benedict Option or something. My favorite thing was in just in trying to find interviews with David Hicks after reading this article, the first one that I I was able to find, I'm sure he did others – pretty close after this episode um, or after this 
article was published was him talking about St. Benedict Mm -hmm. and like his appreciation and admiration of him. And so I think there's, I think this is what you're getting at with going off to Montana, 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 right? So both in his personal life of St. Mark's is a, is a a significant school in Dallas. Um, uh, all, uh, all boys school. It's still an important mainline private school. But he goes off and is part of schools that are start. Like he goes off and he's founding schools because He's hitting headwinds in trying to redeem the, or trying to like course correct the old institutions. But also then, I hear your story. I think AJ wanted to make a point too. Sorry. Sorry. That's okay, but it is a separate thing. So finish your point. It's it's talking about some of the other pillars. I just, when I hear the person saying that they are going to go off to Washington to change the face of education, like I appreciate the optimism and the hope. I know they're going to be crushed almost no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think the move to a local farm he can affect change among his family by working alongside his family in the same way that the homeschool families that listen to this podcast or just make the commitment to raising their children are doing the necessary work to pass on a view that morality matters or that nature is to be followed, not manipulated, or that things have ends, like that things have a telos. Um, that I think you can achieve the goal of making that work in a family in a way that you can't like change the face of society because that doesn't mean anything like there's no Mm -hmm. there's no switch you flip to change society in the Mm -hmm. same way that you can do the work of showing up every day to change your family does that make sense okay so in many ways classical education does have that same kind of thing that chesterton talks about with subsidiary like it is a thing that needs to happen at that smaller scale as opposed to like i don't know you can't have Yeah, it needs to be happening sort of at that more localized level then. I think that makes sense. I still take his point that that then prepares you for life as a magby in my case, but like might not prepare you for life in society at large because norms are um, fractured. Uh, And so I take that point as being difficult, um, but that's not to say that the work can't be done at all. Mm -hmm. Were you going to say something, AJ? It's it's addressing the other pillars. Oh, okay. I, while I think that that, like we can teach norms, right? I've seen kids come out of this school with a different set of norms than their peers, yep. right? That's something we can do. I'm, I think he might be right about the other three. Yep. That those three are, are ingrained in the society in such a way that they cannot, they simply cannot be surmounted into school. Um, for example, the notion that, that nature is something that is meant to submit rather than something that we can adhere to. It is a it is a tuning of the modern mind that I, I don't think I can undo, sure. and it's something that's so indwelt into most of our teachers, parents, and kids that, I, like, even if I spent every day in this classroom trying to overcome it, I don't think it would happen. Sure. Um, and I think part of that is like even the way that we talk about nature is different than the way they used to. For yeah. example, um, I, I don't remember if I went over this way way back when I talked about the spheres, but even the language that we use about physical objects in the world around us has changed. Sure. Back then, they would talk about what a rock does when you drop it, and they would call it an inclination, right? Mm -hmm. A rock is inclined to fall. It's what it likes to do. It wants to do it. And so everything around us was indwelt with almost like a, I don't know, a a spirit, right? right? Something that wanted to do something. So the world around you was living and active and had... It was animated. It animated. It had its its likes and dislikes. It had its soul. And now that we... Now, I mean, it was personified in a way that we still personify nature, but we personify it even in our language in such a way that it is submissive. Laws and force. Not only that, not only laws and force, but it obeys them. Yes, right? yes, yes. Right? The, uh, the rock is not right. inclined yeah. to fall. The rock obeys a law. Both right. are personifications, right. but in the very language of our world, it is built in that nature submits, right? And so this is mm. something I, I can, I, I talk about that in my classes, right. but it will not change mm-hmm. the tuning of the hearts of my students in the same way that um, the ancient ancient man would have seen everything aw- around him indwelt with a purpose, right. right? There is some purpose for everything that is around here. Plato saw the world of forms, right? Not only was there an indwelt purpose, but there was an ideal form of that thing, yes. right. right? That fulfilled its purpose the better than anything else did. Right. My students don't, they simply do not have a frame of reference for that. Yeah. The rock that is inclined to fall is a rock that is enjoying its existence, whereas a rock that is obeying a law is, you know, submitted to the world. But right. gosh darn, I ain't going to obey no laws. Sure, right. And so, I, you know, like, I don't have to be like that rock. Yeah. I can I do my own thing. Screw nature. Right. It's not going to, you know, force me to do stuff. Yeah, nature. As opposed to 
oh, if maybe if I do what I, maybe if I submit to the, my good inclinations that I will be happy like the rock. Sure. And there's <laughs> even a little bit of stolen power from nature, right? Ancient yes. man yeah, looked yeah, yeah. at lightning and looked at tsunamis and waves and the sea as something grand and terrible. And if I, you know, if I talk about the sea and the grandness and terribleness of the sea, students are like, yeah, but we have freighters that like sure. they're fine and they sail across all the time. Scariest, scariest thing is the occasional pirate. Like, <laughs> sure. like even if your ship goes down, we can rescue you at this point. And yeah, the Titanic sucked, but they, that was because they built the ship bad. Right. So my students simply do not have the same frame of reference to respect nature that yeah. they once did. And, and these are not inclinations of the soul that I can change. And the same yeah. with the spiritual element. Right. Like even that was built into this whole respect for nature. And I, my students just don't have that same sense. I'm just imagining, you know, you, you know, AJ, let's say you go start your own classical school and like that's what you put front and center on your marketing material and like no one shows up because they're like who's the kook who wants to talk about how rocks have feelings you know what I mean? like exactly yeah. like it's it's just totally nonsensical to the drown my mind. kids <laughs> put them in a put them talk about a how great the sea is or whatever or <laughs> they'll they'll simply think it's pantheism yeah, right yes. instead of teaching yeah. christianity i'd be teaching that god is everything yeah. and that's that's certainly not what it is it's we just, got those schools already yeah sure. all yeah. it is is a language change but right. it's a language change that matters sure. and, and it's this is one example of the many ways that our attitudes towards the the things around us have changed and i i simply can't overcome that sure uh, this is great. This we're at an hour right now, so I, I'll do my wrap up right now. Oh, really? Yeah. This means we'll have a ton yeah, for the in between. Into this? I know it, it, it's a great article, and I think leads to a lot of discussion. Let me just read the end of it because it's a bummer. Um, uh, no one, but no one should assume this charge lightly. Raising children, believing that a classical education, whether understood as Greek or Latin or great books, a curriculum or a method, will somehow ac- accomplish this task of raising kids well for us. This might have been the case were the ground and pillars for a classical education in place. But as I hope I have shown in this essay, this is not the case. The pillars are toppled in the ground sown with salt as thoroughly as the Romans destroyed Carthage. This requires us to make a sober estimation of the challenge we face. How are we to meet this challenge in an, in an increasingly invasive, relentless, and hostile environment? It's a bummer ending. I think I think the charges he raises, and this is what Adrian Graham, I think both 2017 of you 2017 was a crazy time, man. And, it, and things have only gotten better since then. But I think the... the, the <laughs> We're on the upswing, boys. Yeah, sure. But I, I do think the point he's making is correct, that even in your small localized homeschool com- or we, you know, our classical conversations listeners, like even in those communities, you can enculturate yourself to succeed in that culture, but that culture is not shared by the people around you. And that's the problem he's pointing to, and I think it's correct. Yes, you can still teach and raise your children well, but um, uh, you, they aren't necessarily adaptable. Is that the right? That's not the right word. I would love for someone to write in and tell me how I'm missing the point. But um, these these norms aren't shared by the people around you, and that's the charge of the article. They're not reinforced by the by the people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think these are all valid points. I still think the consideration of Homeschooling is not really considered in this, or it's mm-hmm. not um, taken in this article, and I think is a an important one that um, is worthwhile. I would also there's a there's a great article from uh, uh, Sean Barnett. Um, it's from the Federalist in 2019. I don't the, I, I found it by searching for it. I don't, I don't read the Federalist, um, but the it's titled "Why a Classical Education is Almost Impossible Today," and he goes through his beef with the article is that classical education actually does have much more of a language component. Um, that, again, depending on when you look at it, but for essentially 1,500 years, classical education is essentially learning Greek and Latin and then translating Greek and Latin, and, like, that's the education. And you might sometimes do some other stuff, and nobody does that. Not saying that they should, but, like, literally no one is doing that. Um, And so, but then he, I believe Sean, I believe he has children, and he gets to this part of talking about how he teaches at a classical school. The purpose of my criticism is not to level friendly fire and shoot myself in the foot. I also attended a public school, K through 12, um, didn't learn a lot by his own um, admission. admission in this thing. Um, he talks about his school growing up in Missouri. But um, students at modern classical schools learn, gain mastery of English grammar. They are immersed in great writing from the best English children's literature, such as The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Wind in the Willows, to staples of the Western canon, such as Homer's Odyssey, in an English translation, of course, because we're not really classical. Um, Choose between sending my son to school where he will learn to write beautifully in cursive, receive a content-rich instruction in history and science, and read Treasure Island versus a school where he'd be given an iPad, sat in a pod with other students, and sat in a pod with other students pooling their ignorance. Which one would I pick? That's no-brainer. 
I'm also under no illusion that my son would be receiving a classical education in the historical sense of the word. So just as like a, as my mm-hmm. landing place for this main discussion before we go on into Patreon, you have to make a choice of where people are educated. And even if they're not getting an authentically classical education as Hicks outlines in his article, Veritas is still a great school to send your students to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever classical school is close to you and that you, you know, vet and find is good. It's probably a really good place for you to consider, even if it's not pure in its doctrine of classical education. Those are almost two different questions to answer. So even your yeah. child's are not submitting to nature by the end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like what they will learn and I would rather, yeah, yeah. I would rather Asher learn English from you two than not. Do you know, like that it is better. Uh-huh. Yeah, thanks. Um, but that, do you know what I mean? Like, and even if he wouldn't learn Latin perfectly. That it, feel good make me great. What'd you say? That feel good make me great. What are you saying? What? Just you wanted a, him to teach him English. Never mind. Oh, did I mi- mix up my words? Didn't land. So oh. I was mixing up my words. Oh, because okay. Because I'm because uh, you want to take a compliment. Yeah. Which no, we I was saying on I'm actually a bad month. English teacher because I can't speak. No, it was, yeah, it was really gotcha. funny. That's why I'm laughing right cool. now. Anyway, that uh, we'll we'll get into more. I'm sure in the in between. But just to like as a landing place for this main episode, just because you can't have a pure classical education does not mean that classical schools give bad educations. And I just wanted to say that as a landing place. Um, and we'll, I'm sure, talk much more in cool. the in-between. But that's what I got. Who sure. opened us? Was that you, Green? Awesome. So this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. Or was it actually a Classical Stuff You Should Know? What are we? Maybe Modern we're not. Maybe know. we can't. Can Classical Podcasts even happen? This is just some stuff you should know, some stuff That exists, and we can't be that. We cannot be that. We're not no. that. Um, no, no. What, there's, um, what, what if there's more stuff people should know? This has been Classical <laughs> Stuff You Should Know with Graham, Thomas, and AJ. You can find us at classicalstuff.net. You can tweet at us at Classical Stuff on the Twits. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. And um, thanks for listening. And uh, hit a review on – hit a review. Do a review on mean? the iTunes. <laughs> smash that like and subscribe button on the YouTubes. And, smash a review and, and um, hit the stars buttons. Uh-huh. Anyway, and for those of you who join us on the After after Hour Patreon, No, thank you. No, thank you. The After Hour podcast, uh, we will see you in a sec. But Bye. thanks for listening. Laters. Laters.